Know. Live. Transform. This is 702. This is 702. For the curious. Now it's time for The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith. And he is actually in Australia at the moment, which is why we couldn't talk to him yesterday. Good afternoon, Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. So you were travelling to Australia. Um, So how is it there? Why are you there? Ah, well, this is really exciting. And you've got Megan Sparkle and we've got Prince Andrew over here. (laughs) So basically... um, this is for the opening of something which I think, and, and I'm making a bit of a stick-your-neck-out prediction, but what I think this is going to do is to change the way in the future that we do medicine, fundamentally. Mm. I'm here for the opening of the Phenome Centre in Perth, and it's a, a pioneering project set up by one of the universities here in Perth called Murdoch University. Mm-hmm. And what they have launched, or they are going to open officially on Friday, is this system which is going to ultimately, as I say, change the way we do medicine. It's going to do it by basically looking at the levels of different chemicals in anything Mm. you want to look at from the body. And if you look at enough chemicals in enough detail, in enough people, enough times for long enough, you can begin to spot patterns. For instance, Mm. about 20 years ago, everyone said it was all about the genome. And if we read someone's genetic code, that will tell us exactly you know, what's going to happen to them over the course of their life. But actually, that's quite limited because if, say, you have a gene that means you're going to die of a certain disease, but only if you encounter a certain mm. chemical in the environment. So let's say that you have a gene that means that you're at very high risk of developing alcoholism. Yeah. That's not going to make any difference to your life if you never touch a drop of alcohol. Mm-hmm. If you just read the genome, you'll, you'll know only the bad news. If you read the phenome, which is you look at all the chemicals in the bloodstream, you'll know, actually, this person's at no increased risk of that. And you can extrapolate that across a whole raft of different disorders. And so we're into what we call a discovery phase now, where we take the samples, we take the clinical histories from people, and we look and start recording over decades. And we will start to see how, if you look at the individual levels of hundreds of different chemicals in the body, you'll begin to see specific chemical fingerprints which emerge, which are predictive Mm. of who is going to get what diseases. And that means because you'll be able to see those decades ahead of that disease occurring, you'll be able to say to somebody, if you change your life in the following way and you can get their phenome, effectively that chemical fingerprint, to more uh, accurately represent or reflect what a healthier person has, you're mm-hmm. maximising their health outcomes and minimising their risks of getting certain diseases. You also know that you can keep an eye on somebody who's at higher risk of getting a certain condition. And unlike right. many of these pie-in-the-sky amazing breakthrough ideas, which usually cost a fortune and are therefore not really scalable across a world population, this mm. is very, very cheap to do. These tests wow. generating these, these measurements cost, once we're, we're into the actual deployment phase, just you know, pence to do each test. So you can see a day coming where you go to the doctor and rather than take swabs and send them to a laboratory like my one, where we spend hours growing things and measuring things, and then we eventually send the result back to the GP. With this, what's going to happen is you will miniaturize this in the same way the space probe has miniaturized this equipment down to a shoebox-sized sort of device that sits in the jo- in a the, in the spaceship. You'll be able to mm. do this in a doctor's surgery, take a swab from somebody, put it in the machine, and you'll be able to say, right, okay, here's the diagnosis for you for today. And, and you'll be able to yeah. do this much more regularly 
And that means you can keep a closer eye on people's health. And as I say, get well ahead of someone actually developing a disease. So right. we're going to open this on Friday. And I, I think it's very, very exciting. I think this is a step change in how we are, we, we're going to do medicine in future. Amazing. Is this the first one to be opened in the world? And is it already part of um, a greater medical facility? And what exactly would they be doing? Are they collecting these swabs um, and and then giving us the, the, the kind of insights we need to draw out of them? There's a network of phenome centers around the world. Uh, oh. This is one of about five on this sort of scale. But this is going to be the best one, uh, not just mm. because I, I'm involved, but because <laughs> uh, the people who they've hired to do this were leading the best one in the world before they were recruited here to Australia from London to do this. Mm. And the throughput that they're going to achieve is going to be absolutely stupendous. The sensitivity of this equipment is absolutely awesome. To give you an example of the sort of thing they're doing here, uh, as they're also testing out this equipment, they were doing things like flying drones over whales and dolphins in the ocean. And when those animals mm. breathe out and blow a spray up of breath into the air, they can capture a sample of the breath feed this into the analyzer and that's enough in there to tell them what sex the animal is whether it's pregnant what it's been mm. eating where it's been and mm. that's just from a sample of, of thrown away breath so you can imagine the the um, incredible breadth of what you can do with this sort of technology it's based mm. the center at the fiona stanley hospital here in perth which is a very very new state-of-the-art facility and they have very good electronic patient records in western australia which is why this is such a high priority here because it means that you can very efficiently marry up what mm. the population are doing and what we know about people in terms of their health outcomes and the environment they're living in with mm. what is happening biochemically to them and that will enable the relationships between all these different chemicals to be quite quickly established and therefore we can begin to build proper powerful diagnostic tests off the back of, of this discovery phase which is just getting going now. Yes and clearly it's a, an added move to the personalization of, of healthcare. Yes it's all about personalized medicine because at the moment when you go and get a medical treatment that medical treatment has been developed by taking big groups of people and trying the same treatment on very big groups of people and this is the medical equivalent of you walking into a shoe store or a clothing mm. store and just grabbing the first garment or pair of shoes off the shelf and being told right you wear that and yeah. uh, if it doesn't fit well that's tough. And if it doesn't fit where it's tight, that's called a side effect. And that's what we're doing biochemically with drugs at the moment. Um, personalized medicine is using various ways of measuring you genetically and biochemically and tailoring a treatment to you. But this is really expensive. And, uh, you know, it's, the aspiration is to, to make personalized medicine available for all. But if you were to try and do that with our present technology, it would yeah. be really really tough to do but with techniques like this coming along where the test is actually extremely cheap and very powerfully predictive a long time in advance you do have a much better prospect of doing cheaper personalized health care for very large numbers of people oh amazing just the way you explained it i think that analogy was perfect uh, let's take a break and then we get to the calls uh, right now 011-883-0702 chris smith the naked scientist with us um he's part of an exciting effort of course in australia in perth because they're launching the phenome center and uh there with uh, prince andrew we've got megan spark i just love that chris called her megan sparkle 702 Asanya Mosaka. Lines are always open on O-double-one, double-eight-three. 
0702. Alistair, we start with you. Good afternoon. Hi, Azania and Dr. Chris. Um, I've got a question here. I've been reading about the limbic system mm-hmm. and its conflict with our prefrontal cortex, which probably sounds gibberish to everyone or most of us, maybe not Dr. Chris, I hope. Mm-hmm. But it's happening all the time in our brains. That is procrastination. It's encouraged by internet browsing. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us a quick Naked Scientist 101 tutorial on, on the conflict? On the conflict, okay, and things like procrastination, how it encourages... Okay. Well, the limbic system yeah. and its conflict with prefrontal cortex okay. in our brains. Perfect. Thank you for the question, Alistair. Chris? Well, right, the limbic system. Deep mm. in the heart of your brain, on each side, are a series of interconnected structures, which include the hippocampus, which is, it's called hippocampus because it looks a bit like a seahorse when you cut it in cross-section in the brain. And Mm -hmm. this is intrinsically tied up with how we remember things, how we orientate ourselves in space and time and form short-term memories, which we then translate into long-term memories. And this area of the brain is also richly connected with an adjacent structure called the amygdala. And the amygdala is about the size of an almond, and this is the brain's fear center and emotion center and Mm. if that's overactive then people tend to overreact to things and if it's underactive people tend to have too little fear of danger the chap whose documentary i watched on the airplane climbing el capitano without any ropes this is you know in in america this incredible feat i don't know if you've watched the film um, Mm -mm. with him actually free climbing something which is absolutely terrifying and he said he does occasionally get frightened but on the whole he needs a little bit of fear in order to to make his day worth living you know uh, in him he's had brain scans i believe and there's an underactivity in this part of his brain so the limbic system is all about where you are in place and time how you remember and orientate yourself and how you get frightened of things it's Mm. very evolutionarily ancient as a brain structure if you look at very simple animals compared to us, they all have these same structures. They're bigger in us, but the connections and the way in which they influence physiology and the brain, very, very similar in us mm. compared with more primitive animals. So we believe that because this is fundamental to how we generate emotion and fear and fight or flight reactions and so on, we believe that this is what came first and then superimposed on that as our brains expanded, became more enhanced and bigger was this prefrontal cortex that Alistair mentions. And the prefrontal cortex is the big bit of the front of our brain. And this is what sets us apart from animals because animals don't have this enhanced, enlarged front part of their brain. Or if they do, it's not developed and and enlarged to the same scale and out of proportion to the rest of the brain like the human one is. And what this part of the brain does is it takes the uh, raw behavior that's generated by the limbic system and it filters it and it applies Mm. social filtering and that social filtering says well i know that my knee-jerk reaction to someone doing something that they shouldn't is to just punch them but if Mm -hmm. i were to just punch them a this would be socially unacceptable uh, and it would probably get me in trouble probably get me arrested so i won't do it and so everything that gets generated by the limbic system is then filtered by the prefrontal cortex before it's presented as your outward Uh, affect to the world and when he's saying that there is this tension there sometimes Mm. the two are in conflict where 
your limbic system wants you to do one thing and your social uh, control wants you to do another. And the reason mm. children misbehave is because they have all of the elements of the limbic system are in place and working by the time they're born. Pretty much, oh. they're going to develop a bit more, but they're there. The prefrontal cortex is very underdeveloped and mm -hmm. it, it, it develops more as we age, which is why children's behavior improves yeah. as they get older because they come bet become better at filtering and controlling that raw animal instinct which comes out of the limbic system. Right. And when does that development roughly kind of come to an end of that prefrontal Well, we used to cortex. think, I mean, in some people, obviously, it doesn't seem to have ever come to an end. We all know people <laughs> yeah. like that. But uh, the, the thing is, we used to think that that was probably, you know, by the, your late teens. We now understand the human brain goes on developing well into your 20s and you're not your mature adult self until you're probably in your late 20s. And yes. that's where these connections have really been refined in the front parts of the brain and that social masking and filtering is going on to its optimum. And that's when you really become you by that stage. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for the question, Alistair. What a great explanation. Neville in Boxburg. Hello, Neville. Hello, Chris. My, Neville in Boxburg. My question is, how does the brain work? How does a piece of soft tissue store information? Memory, for example. Mm -hmm. So on the brain-related uh, theme, Chris? Neville, uh, people have been struggling with this question for more than 100 years. The famous Spanish anatomist Ramon Santiago y Cajal um, actually drew these spectacular pictures of nerve cells with mm. his microscope work 100 plus years ago and wondered that very question. How do these amazing, delicate, incredibly intricate nerve fibers and nerve cells mm. do what they do and how do they make us what we are? At the very simplest level, we know that nerve cells are electrically active and that they connect to other nerve cells at structures called synapses. And at these yeah. synapses, when one nerve cell turns on, it releases a chemical which is squirted onto the second nerve cell, and that chemical can either activate or deactivate the target nerve cell. So there's both inhibition and facilitation. And about 80% of the nerve cells in the brain are inhibitory ones. They use a nerve transmitter called GABA and about 20% are excitatory ones. And in this way, the brain refines the electrical signals that flow all over it. And there are different regions of the brain which are specialized for doing different jobs. If we put someone in a brain scanner and we ask which bits of the brain are most active when a person does a certain task, you can mm -hmm. see that there's regions concerned with seeing, there are regions concerned with hearing, there are regions concerned with moving. What we absolutely do not have the foggiest about is how those things are all united to make you feel conscious. We've no idea how consciousness works, and we really yeah. don't understand how this assemblage of 100 billion nerve cells, each of them making about 5,000 connections to other nerve cells, ultimately produces the sensation that we call consciousness. And the other really mind-boggling thing that I always think is, I'm looking at you, and where do I experience you? Right in front of me. Where am I actually seeing you? I'm actually seeing you with the back part of my brain because all the images that have come into my eyes and been converted into electrical signals are being relayed right to the back of my brain on the opposite side of my brain mm -hmm. to the area the light came in from. Yet I experience you as standing right in front of me. So the bottom line is we have no idea how consciousness works. We know it's a construct invented for us to experience by our brain. And we're also living in the past because everything that's presented to our consciousness happened about a third of a second 
before oh. it really before we actually experience it and, yes. and so we're, we're continuously in doomed to inhabit the past in our consciousness yes what came to mind when you were listening when you were saying about we don't we, we actually don't know how all of these things uh, come together you know for this great symphony that we call life and this existence what came to mind was the god particle of course that had to do with the origins of the universe but that was just the word that 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 came up even though it's unrelated but this X factor, this thing that we still don't quite have our finger on. Well, the problem with studying consciousness is that it's it's really, really hard in order to make the right sort of measurement. We don't really know what to measure in order to compare one person's consciousness with another. Is what mm. I call red, the same experience for me as it is for you. When I look at the red letters 702, is that red color the same signal in my brain as it is for you? We call it right. the same. We agree that they're red because your your parents, when you were growing up, said, hey, that's a red color. And they said to me, hey, that's a red color. And so we both mm. agree that that sensation is red, but we've no idea if our experience is the same. And we can't really compare them. So we just don't know how to get underneath what is consciousness and why do we experience it. And does an animal with a brain structure, which is actually very similar to our own, is an animal therefore conscious? Does it have the same thoughts and feelings albeit perhaps in a simplified way, that we do or not. We do not know. We do not know. Ah, Thank you. Thank you so much for a, a very stimulating conversation. Matt R on uh, Twitter says, listening to Dr. Chris Smith, I feel like if I had 0.1% of his knowledge, I'd be amongst the smartest, most knowledgeable people in the world, just with 0.1%, Chris. <laughs> Great compliment to you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, and thanks for the kind kind words. It's a, it's a pleasure, and it's a privilege to talk to you all. And enjoy Perth. Well, I shall certainly do my best. They do very good red wine here, but I reckon I reckon South African red can now give them a damn good run for their money. So I'm going to go and do the trial in true, true scientific <laughs> <laughs> true scientific practice, and, and I'll report back next week. Beautiful. Thank you, Chris. <laughs>